third chapter of Genesis already, and we will read a good chunk of it, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloth. Verse 17. Adam's, and to Adam, God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of, the, of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned in every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 400 years ago, the followers of a Dutch professor got together and they put together a list of doctrines, beliefs that they had taken from the teaching of their mentor. And they didn't just express these doctrines. Like the cancel culture of today, they insisted that everyone conform to them. You say, on what grounds did they do this? On one principal ground, and that ground was this, that God saves a man and a woman by looking down the corridors of time and seeing what decision that person would make, whether he or she will accept Christ or not. In other words, it's the sinner's choice. If God sees him say yes to Jesus, then God will save him. If God sees that he rejects Christ, then he will damn him forever. Now, that's what they said 
And today, that's what most Christians believe. But you know what the church said two or 400 years ago? After they thoroughly examined every one of these doctrines and demands that these people were making, they said that it was heresy because it was at, in opposition to what the Bible says. There's no excuse. They said it was wrong. And they cast them out of the church. There's a man I know who was shot down as a Navy pilot over Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Today, he has lost all of his original parts, it seems. I mean, every joint's been replaced. A few years ago, I heard him speak about Psalm 103, where the Lord, through David, tells us how far he separates our sin from us. Remember what David says there. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. This man said, I'm so glad that David said as far as the east is from the west. Because as a naval pilot, if I fly south and I go to the South Pole, as soon as I come out the other side, I'm flying north. If I fly to the north and I go to the North Pole, then I'm flying south. But when I fly east, I never get to the west. If I fly west, I never get to the east. You know what else he said that day? He said, you know, when you fly and you're one degree off, every mile you travel means you'll miss your target by 92 feet. That means if you're flying from JFK to LAX and you're off by one degree, that means you'll end up in the Pacific Ocean 40 miles away from the airport. The only difference between landing at the airport and landing in the ocean and using your seat cushion as a flotation device is one little degree. Years ago, I heard a famous television preacher talk about the human condition, and he used an analogy. He said, it's like every single person, man, woman, and child, is in a fast-moving river. And that river is headed toward a waterfall, and on the other end of that waterfall are jagged rocks, and that's complete destruction. But what Jesus does is he comes to the shoreline, and he throws life preservers in, and he says to all who are there in the water, just grab the life preserver, and I'll reel you in. Now, the problem with that is it's 180 degrees from what the Bible says. When you come to Genesis 3, you come to the place where all of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith have their embryonic form. Here, every one of us is pictured like Betty Davis, who famously said, I should have been like Snow White, but I drifted. We all drift. In fact, David knew that so well, he knew that even before he took his first breath, he was drifting. He said, in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. Where did he get that? Genesis 3. 
When Paul writes the Ephesians, a church he spent more time with than any other group of Christians, he says in chapter 2, we, you were all dead in your trespasses and sins. Where did he get that? Genesis 3. Before Genesis 3, we understand and we've looked at this. We are created in the image of God. He puts us in a perfect environment with every need met. In that garden, he establishes a perfect relationship with his people. The Bible says he walked in the cool of the garden, the cool of the day in the garden with Adam and Eve. And there in that garden, he provided fruit from every tree except one. And that's the one Adam and Eve wanted. And that's the tree you and I want too. Henny Youngman once said that if you know you're going to do something tonight that you will regret in the morning, sleep late. Adam knows all about that. And that's what Genesis 3 shows us. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the question. Look at verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any of the tree of the garden? Now that word translated crafty or cunning is used throughout the scriptures and it's never used in a positive sense. It means to trick. It means to subvert. So who is this prestigitator that is tempting and subverting, subverting God's word and tempting Eve? He's Satan himself. He's the one God banishes from heaven for one particular reason, his rebellion. In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we read that he is the one that sought to elevate himself to the throne of the Most High God. He sought to be like God, and God cast him out of heaven. And here we see Satan tempting the woman to do exactly the same. He's trying to trick Eve into doing something that he did so that he might rule over her. One time the famous German theologian Karl Barth was asked, Dr. Barth, do you believe that a serpent literally spoke to a woman in the garden? He said it's not important whether a woman or a serpent spoke to a woman in the garden. What's important is what he said. In other words, you can spend all of your time trying to figure out what the serpent looked like, why he was alluring, why he must have had such beauty, why he could communicate with Eve. You can answer all of those questions and still miss the point, what he says. Look what he says. Did God say that you cannot eat of any of the tree of the garden? In other words, could a good God put you in this environment and not allow you to eat from the trees? That's when Eve corrects him, and he moves from doubting God's word to contradicting it. You will not surely die if you eat in this day, but you will be like him, knowing good from evil. You see, that's the essence of his argument. You don't have to be satisfied with being simply a reflection of God. You can be God yourself. 
And that's exactly what he said to himself. It's not a new argument. In fact, that is the heart of every sin. I can be my own God. I can call my own shots. I know better than anyone else. You see, the first man to sing, I did it my way, is not a guy from Hoboken, New Jersey. It's a man from Eden. And the truth is, that's a song of every one of our hearts. And it all begins in the same place, doubting the heart of God. Why did God put the forbidden fruit in the garden? Why did he put at the center of the garden a tree that bore fruit that he banned man and woman from eating? Jesus answers that. In Luke chapter 4, Satan has come to him in the wilderness and he's trying to make Jesus make bread out of stone. And Jesus replies, Man shall not live by bread alone. But that's not all that the Father says in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here he's talking to Israel and he says, I've humbled you and I've let you hunger that you might know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. It's the same for fruit. We don't live by fruit alone either. You see, that tree in the garden didn't give life. The maker does. The tree is simply a symbol of man's total dependence upon God and his word. And look where God puts it, right in the center of their relationship. You see, from the very beginning, Satan continually asks one question. Did God really say that? And his motive is transparent. He wants you to replace God's word with your own word. Then second, notice the conviction. Look at verse six. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Three hundred years ago, children in this country used a curriculum that wouldn't be approved today. In fact, it wouldn't be tolerated. It was called the New England Primer, and it had alphabetized lessons, and listen to the alphabet letter A and what it said. The letter A, in Adam's sin, we all sin. Can you imagine what the NEA would say about that? Under X, it says, Xerxes the Great died, and so must you and I. The NEA might not like that either, but you know who did? Paul. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes this, By one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. So death passed to all men, for all have sinned. Do you know where he gets that? Genesis 3. You see, in Genesis 3, we learn that we're sinners not because we sin. We learn that we sin because we're sinners by nature. 
And the proof that we are sinners is our reaction to sin, and that is to hide. It's to obfuscate. It is to cover up. Late one evening in December 1941, Winston Churchill was in the White House meeting with FDR. He spent three nights there and four days. And during the first evening, they were talking among themselves about starting a group of nations that would get together and try to discuss problems and come up with solutions. And it was getting late. And finally, FDR said to his British colleague, let's turn in and continue this discussion tomorrow. And so Churchill went to the Lincoln bedroom and an hour later, FDR had the, an idea for a name, the United Nations. And so he went down to the Lincoln bedroom and he opened the door, he was in his wheelchair, and there standing in front of him was Winston Churchill who had just emerged from his bath, totally naked. And when Churchill saw that Roosevelt was looking at him, he said, Mr. President, we British have nothing to hide. But Adam did. So did Eve. So do you and I. The Bible shows us the moment Adam eats, God honors his promise. Adam dies. And his hiding from his sin and from his Lord is a perfect illustration of his death. Fear now replaces fellowship. No longer does he have ears to hear and eyes to see the things of the Lord. And that's what those Dutchmen and that's what that TV preacher miss. When Adam falls, he falls all the way to spiritual death. As Paul says, in Adam we all die. That's why he can say, Paul, to the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Think of it. When Adam and Eve eat that fruit, what they are saying is we can be gods. Exactly the same sin as Satan. With exactly the same result, they will be cast out. Now, instead of two wills in the universe, there are four. And soon there are to be hundreds and thousands and millions and billions. And then third, notice not only the question, the conviction, notice the contention. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I mean, think of what Satan must have thought when he saw God create from the dust a man in his own image. He must have said to himself, I will steal him away. I will make him part of my kingdom. I must make him believe that he is a God unto himself. I must make him believe that God is a liar. And then I will win. But God won't allow it. The humanist said man never fell. He's simply pulling himself up. The religionist says man has fallen, but he can prove himself to God and, and then gain his favor. The TV preacher says man fell, but he still has a free will. He can choose to follow Christ or he can reject Christ. He can reach out and grab that life preserver and have Jesus reel him in, but the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 says, you're dead wrong, man is dead. 
Man is free to choose only what his heart desires. And we see in Genesis 3, all that man's heart desires is death. The human heart will always choose what it's best, what it thinks is best. And the best is always the worst. You know, when H.G. Wells looked over the sad state of the world, he said there are really two possibilities. Either God has no power to fix the problems, even though he cares, or else he doesn't care. But Genesis 3 shows there's a third option. Not only does God care, he has the power to fix it. In verse 15, he makes a promise to the woman. Your seed will win, he says. And then he tells us how. It's in verse 21. And the Lord God made Adam and for his made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Do you know what that means? That means at least three things. First of all, it means that Adam and Eve no longer have to hide wearing insufficient clothing. Second, it means that instead of shedding their blood, he's going to shed the blood of a substitute. He's going to take that substitute's clothing and clothe them with it. And then third, it means God will do all of this. And Adam and Eve will not contribute one single thing. Do you see this? All Adam and Eve do is hide. All they do is hide. They hide in the trees. They hide behind their fig leaves. And God does all the rest. He calls to them. He comes to them. He finds them. He promises not to destroy them. He promises to do something for them they could never even have desired to do for themselves. He promises to clothe them with the skin of a substitute who will die so that they might live. Do you see this? It's all here in Genesis chapter 3. Years ago, Barnhouse was in Charleston, South Carolina. He was there for a week to preach a series of meetings morning and night. The hotel he was staying in was a very fashionable hotel. Church was picking up the tab. He goes to breakfast the first morning and the waitress comes out and says, I can get you anything on the menu. And he said, he orders and she says to him, are you here for just a day or two? And he said, no, I'm here for the week. She said, why are you here? He said, I'm going to be preaching down the street every morning and every night. She said, oh, wow. That's very nice, but I never go to church. You see, I'm the principal breadwinner in my family, and so I have to work two jobs. When I get home at the end of the day, I'm tired, and yet I have to take care of my sick mother. Every day, it's the same thing. I always try to do what's right. Barnhouse nods and says nothing. Every morning's the same thing. She takes his order and then she tells him how good she is. Finally, the last morning comes and he says to her, Mildred, you know, you're a tremendous waitress. Could you, 
possibly get me something that's a little unusual? Could you get me anything I want? He, she said, absolutely. He said, what I'd really like to do is have you get me a big pancake cooked only on one side. She said, you've got to be kidding me. That's horrible. You don't want to eat that. And he said, that's what I want. So she dutifully goes to the kitchen. Within a couple of minutes, he hears shouting. A few more minutes, out comes the chef with a half-baked pancake. He says to him, do you really want this? Barnhouse said, yes, sir. He puts it down, gooey side up, walks away. Barnhouse looks at Mildred and said, you know, Mildred, for a week you've been telling me how good you are. You've told me how you work two jobs every day and come home late. You told me how you care for your sick mother. You told me so many wonderful things you do, and I believe every one of them, because in all of my years of travel, I've never had a waitress that was kinder and more attentive than you. And from a human perspective, you're well done. You're like the underside of this pancake. But as God sees you, you're nothing more than an uncooked mess of runny batter, good for nothing. And that's why Jesus came, Mildred. He came for you. He came to do something that you could never do for yourself. And after a couple of more minutes, for the first time in her life, Mildred saw herself for who she really was. That wasn't Barnhouse's doing. That wasn't that pancake's doing. That was the word of God opening her eyes to see who she was and who he is. You know, that morning she didn't reach for a life preserver. She couldn't. That morning, Jesus did for her everything that was ever going to be done that had eternal consequence. He removed the fig leaves of her own efforts and dressed her in his own clothes. You see, if you're only off by one degree, you're going to miss the truth of the gospel. You know what the gospel says? You don't know, need any more resolve. You don't need redirection. You need resurrection. And you know something? Resurrection is never a cooperative effort. Jesus, the word of God, does it all. Do you know where we see that? Genesis 3. Think about that. Amen.